Welcome to another episode of Talking Force here in the lab. This is Tom Newman, and today we have a special guest, Drew Hammonds, joining us all the way from Fort Bragg. Um, he is going to take us on a journey. He's going to take us on, uh, you know, his journey as a coach from where he started and then kind of how to where he got um, today. And what I think is most important to point out is that he's kind of blazed his own path, both through firsthand experience um, combining technology and then also doing good for both his clients um, and the people uh, now that he works with. So without further ado, uh, Drew, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about how you got started? Because I know, again, to the place where you got right now, um, you know, has been a journey. What was that like? Yeah. So um, I think like most most millennials, uh, I got my start in fitness with a program that people may know of called P90X. Um, that was sort of my first dabble in training, if you want to call it that. I'd, I'd played sports my whole life, uh, but had never really trained for them, so to speak. Didn't really understand kind of the how and the why behind things. Um, and then in high school, sort of just out of nowhere, I started getting into it. Uh, you know, first, like I said, with P90X and then into the uh, kind of Jim Jones CrossFit seal fit world um, through high school and, and into college. I actually got my degree in business from uh, University of North Carolina near Fort Bragg and then took a year off after school to sort of get my feet wet in strength and conditioning. So I did the personal trainer thing, um, you know, studied for the CSCS and did all of that. And at that point, I had elected to do uh, my postgraduate work in Scotland. Um, so I got my master's degree in the UK in strength and conditioning. And that was my first exposure to, I guess, what we could call formal strength and conditioning, where I was working alongside athletes. I did some work with the Scottish Rugby Organization, did some work with uh, the athletes at University of Edinburgh. Um, and somewhere, I, I suppose, somewhere within that time frame, started to get a little bit more interested in the military side of things. I had been interested in joining the military, I think probably like most guys my age, um, just because of kind of growing up in that environment, but um, realized that there was opportunity to combine the, the human performance stuff that I had been interested in with the tactical space and was incredibly fortunate when I graduated uh, from Edinburgh to be offered one of the early positions within Air Force Special Operations as a strength coach. So I think I must have been probably 23 or 24 and they sort of handed me the keys to one of the one of the squadrons and uh, I took over as strength coach there for probably a hundred-ish athletes. Um, had no clue what I was doing, uh, but but did the best that I could with, with what I had learned in grad school and what I had picked up along the way. Um, so I was, I was in that role both as a strength coach and then as a program director for about six years and then made the move over here to Fort Bragg um, to do a similar thing, but on the Army side with, with the conventional Army with the new H2F program. So I, I've sort of been, I don't know if this makes me unique or not, but I've been involved strictly with tactical strength and conditioning, tactical human performance for kind of my whole career. I know most guys that are in my position or in, in this space have come from you know, division one athletics or professional sport. Um, but for me, I mean, it's been, it's been really just tactical human performance. Um, and obviously, you know, as you and I will probably get into a lot of that journey involved hopping on board with a lot of tech very early on, whether that was different software applications that I would use with my guys, different wearables, you know, monitors, that sort of thing. Um, and, and it could just be a product of sort of 
my age and and what I grew up with, but I saw a lot of opportunity with those sorts of things. And I, I like to think that I kind of dove headfirst into applying a lot of that stuff as opposed to being a little bit more withdrawn from it. But I suppose that's my background in a nutshell. Um, I like to tell people that I've gone corporate now. I don't do as much training anymore with athletes. I still, I still have a handful of guys that I work with on the side, you know, with reps and sets and that sort of thing. But at this point, it's much more managing of, of the embedded sports performance model. That's that's awesome. And, and, you know, I, I'd like to point out, you know, we first spoke, um, it was a couple of years ago and I was really intrigued because some of the things that you were talking about, uh, I think I saw on a, one of your YouTube videos and I was talking about periodization, but specifically as it related to how do you, how do you work with somebody that, you know, there is no off season, there's no, Oh, let me, you know, I'm going to have you for, you know, eight months and I'm going to do this. And it's very, you know, down to the percentage, uh, of what this Olympic lift's going to be and all this kind of, I don't know, very scripted approach. You're like, yeah, I might have them for two weeks and it's all recovery. I might have them for six months and I might actually have them go do an operation and they come back worse than when I send them out. And so the deconditioning effect, I thought it was really fascinating, um, your approach to kind of periodization to it. And the other thing, uh, I know TSAC came out, you call it fairly new, uh, in the world of strength and conditioning, but it's still, that's in, you know, strength and conditioning is in its infancy. The tactical community is even more in the infancy. And again, as strength and conditioning used powerlifting, bodybuilding, and these different elements to try to uh, enhance performance uh, to win games, what are you doing uh, or what are you seeing? What are some of the blends on the tactical space? Because again, in tactical, you know, you're not playing for trophies. So what is your marker for success or production? Well, it's interesting because I have always... And I think I heard this somewhere. I don't know if I made it up or not, but I have said for the longest time that a lot of coaches, and I'll extend that too to, you know, the musculoskeletal population, PTs, athletic trainers, because you're getting a lot of folks coming into this world from years of experience elsewhere. And a lot of that, you know, comes from sport and that sort of thing. So there's a saying that I use pretty frequently, which is that we're not dealing with football players in camouflage. And what I mean by that is, the tactical athlete as this archetype really needs to be considered its own, its own entity, its own paradigm. We can't just take what we've learned from, you know, West side or football or basketball or Olympic lifting, and then slap it on some, you know, Metcons with sandbags and weight vests and call it tactical strength and conditioning. I've always taken a little bit of a different approach um, inspired by guys like, John Kiley and his work on periodization, Evan Pycon and Aaron Davis and their work with near infrared spectroscopy and MOXIE monitors, which I think we'll probably get into, but it's very much a bottoms up approach as opposed to a top down approach. And what I mean by that is when we have the luxury of knowing what a season looks like, we can take football as an example. And I know when the games are going to be, who we're playing, when we're traveling, when I have the players, there's a lot of control in that environment. I have the luxury of being able to essentially forecast where I think the performance is going to go. And I don't think a lot of strength coaches recognize that what strength and conditioning really is, is an attempt at telling the future. So when I put a program together, especially one of these longer ones that might be six, 12, you know, 18 weeks, my assumption is that the athlete is going to comply with that program. And at the end of it, they're going to be a better product than what they were when they walked in the door. And I tried that approach early on because it was all that I knew. But what I recognized, as you mentioned, Sometimes I may only have a guy for a couple of weeks. Sometimes I may have a guy for a little bit longer. More importantly, sometimes I may have guys that just aren't really bought into what I'm doing because in a lot of cases, the programming that's being provided by the embedded folks within the military is not mandated by any sort of command. So 
I have to more or less win over my athletes and get them on board with my system. And so I had to make a lot of, I guess you could, you could call them sacrifices, but really what it was, was giving more control of the programming process over to the athlete. And then me as the strength coach being someone that they could bounce ideas off of, I could work with them to come up with solutions to whatever they were trying to get to. Um, and again, that was much more of what you could think of as like a bottoms up approach. So what equipment do we have access to? What kind of timeline are we working with? What does their training history look like? I get a lot of guys that, you know, love doing CrossFit type stuff. I get a lot of guys that have endurance backgrounds, but want to get better at lifting weights. I have a lot of guys that lift weights, but know that they need to run more. So I don't think you can have as much success if you just assume that you have the solution to all the problems. I think that there's a lot more that can be said, especially in the tactical space around this idea of the coach serving more as the guy who is steering the ship, not so much the captain of the boat. Um, so to get to your question about how do you, how do you measure performance? I don't think that we can really hang our hat on a lot of these objective metrics that we've all grown very familiar with. So, you know, some popular ones that come up are like a, you know, two K row in under seven minutes or a deadlift that's this much or a back squat that's this much. Those are nice. And I think that they can serve as markers for these guys to sort of push for. But at the end of the day, I've seen guys that may not be able to deadlift over 300 pounds, may not be able to run very fast, but when they get back from a deployment, they're the ones that have all the accolades and they're the ones that their guys point to and say, Hey man, he crushed it. And so it's hard for me then as the strength coach to try to force down people's throats, this idea of you have to be able to lift this much or run this fast. And that's when I started to get into a lot more of the technology space, because if I can instead look at each individual's physiology and try to optimize that relative to himself, as opposed to some arbitrary number on a board, then my assumption would be as this sort of SME around human performance, that when he gets to that deployed setting or when he's doing the mission or whatever it might be, he'll be a more resilient and robust athlete, regardless of what the numbers you know, pan out to be in the gym. Um, so it's a bit of a rambling answer, but hopefully it starts to scratch the itch around how do we measure tactical performance. We talk a lot about looking at metrics in a vacuum and it's a very slippery slope. You know, the, the top five guys previously lifted this, therefore future people must do that. When, especially if you talk about tactical or in combat, uh, it's more of the concept of readiness and what does readiness look like? So do you have to hit 300? Uh, you just need to not, not be able to do a hundred and somewhere in between. And again, if you're say uh, on an assault team, that might be di completely different than a mortar team or whatever the job function and duty is. So to make a general blanket statement um, typically falls off because um, having the superior strengths or attributes in, you know, hardware, software, or plumbing of the individual uh, is far less beneficial than like you get winded going up the stairs. Like, mm -hmm. and that's one of your job requirements. And so analyzing all different angles and perspectives and then going with what it works, which kind of brings me into the next thing. You keep mentioning this tech and I know I, I laugh uh, all the time. Uh, people either fall into the, you know, I, I, I don't believe in science. I've been doing this my whole life, insert some long decade, long time. Um, and it's either or camp and it's almost like you, you can't ever live in between. And you, I still remember our first conversation. I said, well, well where did you come up with that? And you're like, Hey man, I just did this a bunch of times and people that come in the zone and, the, and this, and they're in this ballpark, they, they do better. Well, there's no research for that. Well, I, I don't have time for that. How did you fall into that space? And could you talk about uh, either some of the tech or some of the things that you kind of 
fell into or, or discovered uh, people may not know about. And more specifically, the process of how you evaluate. Because the other thing too, is you don't want to be uh, chasing the end of one example and then go down the wrong rabbit hole. So what's kind of your methodology as you think through, okay, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to pre and post, or I'm going to analyze it. How does that work? I think um, one of the things that I suppose is a blessing and a curse working with the military is that you do you have access to a lot of resources in a lot of cases. And usually what that means is that you can, you can try things out, test things out. In a lot of cases, companies or organizations are, are wanting you to do that. Um, so it's very easy to fall victim to this idea that because I can use it, I will. So, and, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. If you can get the latest and greatest and it helps your, your guys at the end of the day, then that's great. But, I always thought about technology and adopting technology through the lens of this, this systems idea. So I don't think of myself as having a certain dogma when it comes to training, but I do like to consider what I've put together as a little bit of a system. Um, and, and so if there's technology that I can use that will support that system, then that's usually what I'm going to go after. So for example, we talked a little bit about, optimizing physiology. So then the question becomes, okay, well then how can I best measure that physiology? I could do heart rate based stuff. I could do VO2 max stuff, but at the end of the day, those are just proxies for what I'm really after, which, you know, not to nerd out on anything, but like oxygen delivery, utilization, that type of stuff is what really is going to matter to these athletes when they reach that breaking point. And so what can I use that will go after those sorts of data points that I can then actually translate into performance in the gym. So a more concrete example of that is this Moxie monitor that I think most folks are familiar with at this point. If they're not, it's definitely worth a Google. Um, but what that allowed me to do with guys was actually drill down to what is the limitation that they run into when they, when they reach that breaking point. So I know when we first spoke a while back, it was this incremental step test on an assault bike. And we were figuring out, you know, if guys were utilization limited versus delivery limited versus respiratory limited. And based on what, general category they fall into the training itself needs to become individualized so that we can chase that limiter and that becomes important based on what we were just talking about a second ago with these objective performance markers because again ultimately it doesn't really matter the weight that's on the bar or the, or the speed that's on the stopwatch what really matters is when they reach the point either in the gym or in combat where they physiologically break down what is that point and how can I push that goalpost a little bit further down the field? I think one thing that I always question when people come to me with technological solutions for anything is what does this mean for Monday? And that's kind of the phrase that I'll use is, is what does this mean for Monday? Like if I implement this piece of technology, is it going to fundamentally change what I do in the gym? It might add something to it, which is always great. I mean, I can, you know, put any device on a guy and I'll get more information, but is it actually going to change the way that I train this individual or not? And I think the, the Moxie monitor is one of those examples where, yes, it did fundamentally change the way that I was doing things. Whereas something like an Omega wave or, or you know, VO2 master, those types of things, they add interesting data points. They may not necessarily be paradigm shifts. Um, so again, I, I, I think that I'm a little bit, probably not cynical, but a little bit more reserved when it comes to onboarding new technology, just because I know that it's very easy to fall victim to pretty graphs and flashing lights and, you know, sexy looking design. But 
at the end of the day, people have been training and succeeding in sport and life for generations without any of that stuff. So if they've been able to do it without it, what do I really need to add that will take my process, you know, that much further? Yeah, I remember when you talked about that step test and I, you know, was thinking in my head, I'm okay, test and, you know, how it might break out. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I said, oh, what's the, you know, warm up before or whatever. And you're like, yeah, no warm up. I was like, what? And you're like, some guys actually suck at warming up. Like the actual act of warming up is where they suck. And I was like, huh, okay. I, I kind of took, okay, well, fine. That makes sense. And then you're like, and then you said the other bucket was they're just not strong. They can't get to the proper wattage. Um, so that is a strength or strength endurance where they get it and then they struggle to maintain. And then the other side, as you said, and then some people, once they hit the wall, they fall off. And I think you described it as just like a terrible train wreck and the backside of the pyramid and they just can't recover. Like there's no, they're like nauseous. They can't even, they can't even speak. And, and so that one conversation of thinking about three buckets, three mechanisms of, as you mentioned, the limiting factor that spawned that whole football season into, okay, what is our prep look like? Is it an, is it elongated prep? Do some people need more? Is it mental? Is it physical? But then that coming off the rails, is it mental? Is it, was it not proper hydration? And then could we put other things in and what would it look like? So it almost became a game, like a NASCAR pit crew of how do we build up that backside? And we would say like, Oh, this person really struggles to recover. They hit the wall. And then even sometimes they stress themselves out. So working on breathing and intentionality. And, and I remember saying, someone was like, well, I get good at this. I'm like you might never be good. You just suck less. And like, that'll be good. Uh, that's better for you, but that's, that's, you know, just an example of how you took something. And I don't think that's written anywhere. I don't know how you uh, first stepped into that, but that spawned an entire shift in thinking um, at Yale. And I, I think that's one of the things that people have to understand, as you mentioned, we've been doing this for a long time, like the act of lifting and training and trying to create biological adaptations, pay attention to the data, see that it gives you clarity. But as you pointed out, so what, what am I going to do with this? Well, for me, it was, you know, if the linebackers are having problems going down the backside of the pyramid, we're going to address that. If other people just aren't strong enough, they couldn't, Oh, that's great. You got to 150 Watts. That's not, we're not, we're not even close. Like, right. And it's not a good or bad. It's just, well, it's very clear what we need to do uh, to improve it. How do you, how do you, how do you recommend if someone's new to this, how do they not fall victim to the, and this shiny toy and this shiny toy, what's kind of your litmus test? litmus test to figure out, okay, yes, this has value. Yes. I need to implement it without changing, you know, every other week with a new fad. Man, I think that's the, that's the million dollar question. I think, um, you know, again, it goes back to having a system. I think one thing that is important in strength and conditioning and that is not often taught is critical thinking and, and kind of critical self-analysis. Um, and what I mean by that is that we often fall victim to these positive feedback loops where, you know, my method of training works. Does it work because it works or does it work because it's adapting to the various types of athletes that you're dealing with? And I think we can see this a lot. And, you know, this is your world, not mine with football, but by the time you're dealing with those athletes, and especially as we get higher and higher up, they have in a, in a way self-selected to be at the level that they're at. And so the implementation that I am putting on them, and this could be applied to any sport that I'm putting on them is much more likely to be successful. Because so in the tactical space, one thing that becomes very, very obvious when you first step in the door is that you're dealing with 
a ton of different body types, a ton of different physiological makeups, a ton of different heights, weights, whatever you want to call it. And so I can't necessarily assume that the system that works for athlete A is going to work for athlete B, C, D, et cetera. And so I need to equip myself with technology, with devices, et cetera, that allow me to shift the marker, so to speak, in terms of what I'm going to do to make this individual better versus this individual versus this individual. So in some cases that might be, and I won't name any, any brand names with this, but wearables, for example, wearables are sort of notoriously bad at data, whether that's sleep, heart rate, whatever, especially the ones that you wear on your wrist, just because of where they're at from a real estate perspective, like the data that you get on the back end of that is not very accurate. And it's not something I'm going to make decisions off of. However, it has a lot of buy-in on behalf of the athlete. And there's a tremendous placebo effect with guys watching their sleep, competing to sleep more, watching their, you know, activity, stress level, whatever you want to call it, these metrics that these companies will often make up as a practitioner, you have to have the awareness to say, okay, I'm not necessarily going to react to individual data points, but if I hear guys in the hall talking about how they slept more than that guy, or my recovery was better than you, I don't really care how accurate the data is. Like I've created behavioral change. And I think that's a really important piece that often gets overlooked as we chase what is quote unquote, the most accurate. Um, so again, that's sort of the litmus test that I go through. Is it something that's going to create behavioral change? Is it something that's going to create actionable data? And then the next question after that is how accurate is that data? Because at the end of the day, if you are going to bring something into the weight room and if you are going to use something that's going to fundamentally change how you program, you're probably going to have to back that up with some level of evidence down the road. Um, so it goes back to that idea, which you know we talked about before we hopped on this, of like evidence-based versus evidence-led. I don't necessarily make decisions based off of peer reviewed research all the time, but if I start to implement something that I do find to be successful, I'm probably going to reach out into the network of folks that I know that do conduct that research and say, Hey, here's what I'm seeing. Can we validate this just to put a little bit more meat behind it? What's some of those things that now, you know, again, the conversation we had about that test was years ago. What are some of the things now that you're evaluating or looking at, or, you know, got the wheel spinning? I, honestly, the biggest thing I'm looking at now or, or considering is how to take how to take the stuff that has worked so well in special operations where you're dealing with a much smaller population and extrapolate that out to on a conventional army side. You're talking scales of thousands of soldiers. So it, it's great if you can. And I think we see this a lot in human performance where you'll have these like Elliot Kipchoge's of the world that run a sub two hour marathon, but they have millions and millions of dollars of Nike invested into their performance. Okay, cool. But does that allow me to translate the intervention to 50 to hundred people that want to run a 5k? And obviously the answer there is no, but for something like, you know, Moxie in this example, where we're looking at limitations and we're doing more constraints based programming and limiter based programming, are there bits and pieces of what I might be able to apply to 50 people that I can extrapolate and apply to 2000 people? Um, and I think that's sort of the next, next frontier sounds a little bit cheesy, but I think that's kind of the next frontier in tech is how can I scale up and create interventions that affect thousands as opposed to dozens or hundreds. Yeah. And I think as you, as you mentioned that, that it stays reliable and accurate. Mm -hmm through scale. I, I can't tell you the number of times I would look at not metrics. It's like, Oh, wow. Like, cool. You, you have uh, you know, 20, 20 softball players that jump over 40 inches. That's like wild. Like that's crazy. That's better than the NFL. Like 
give the team, well, you know, we did a running or whatever, well, then you got to indicate it, you know, and then, and then you can't compare that or a pro agility, you know, half the guys touch with their feet. The other people go the other way. That standardization, you really, I think you also talked about that analytical mind. There is some scientific methodology that you have to follow that it's, you know, accurate, repeatable, reliable. You're not, you know, one's on ice, one's on grass, one's on whatever. And then knowing the limitations of that. And it's the values really, you hit it right there on the head with the, uh, you're going to have things that are kind of dashboards that kind of confirm or support, or maybe kind of give you a little uh, check engine light. And then, like you said, whether it's the rings or the watches or whatever, just do it. Like if that's what gets the individuals to go to sleep, I don't care. Cause at the end of the day, whatever it takes, sleeping more is usually better. And I'm sure you're, individuals the most motivated they probably sleep the less and mm-hmm. and again they're by design you know super amped up when they're awake well they don't want to sleep and so if that's what it takes as a, a product to do it then use it but again that's not a sleep study or that's not a specifically accurate tool but it could be a behavioral change what are some other what are some other texts that you looked at that you know kind of pique your interest right now well, I mentioned the Omega Wave a little bit earlier as something that's a little bit superfluous, but I will touch on it because I think if you, and this is definitely something that would be more in kind of the one-on-one small group type setting, but I think the Omega Wave is one of those devices that does a phenomenal job of tracking, measuring, recovery, et cetera. And there's, there's things that it does that aren't great, but it is one of those that when you pair it with something like a Moxie, um, you can get some pretty interesting and pretty robust data in terms of readiness, in terms of recovery, um, injury prevention, that type of thing. Um, but again, the, the key is how do I take that and make it something that if either A, I, I have athletes that don't have access to it, or B, I for some reason do have a bunch of athletes that have access to that type of tech, how do I educate them on what it means so that if there's a situation where I might not be there, you know, maybe it's a deployed setting or maybe they're away training and they don't have access to a cell phone or whatever. How can I educate them so that they can make decisions on the data separate from me being there looking over their shoulder? Um, So again, I think that sort of goes back to how do you determine which tech to use, which tech is, is kind of quote unquote the best. It really all comes down to ease of use. How compliant is the guy going to be with it? Uh, and is there a way to educate him so that if I'm not there, he can still function and react to the information that he receives? Uh, because it's, it's very easy, like I said, to distract people with pretty graphs and with numbers and proprietary algorithms. But if the learning curve and the time between data and decision is too steep, then it's probably just going to fall off the rails as soon as you put chaos into the equation. And I think chaos is kind of the name of the game when it comes to tactical human performance. Yeah, we um, we just did our software um, uh, update uh, just actually came out today um, and we went through it. And one of our key focuses was workflow speed. Mm -hmm. Can I collect, you know, 10 jumps or can I collect 100 jumps? And then how quickly can I turn it around? What if I don't have Internet? What if I don't, you know, have a, a same surface? How do I go about handling those things? But to your point, can the athlete run it? Can an individual do it? And then getting away from oh, let's do a testing day for a thing that used to live in a lab that, you know, collected dust a lot to now it's just an everyday tool and it's embedded in. And maybe I'm going to look at, oh, I want to increase power. I want to work on my strategy, you know, my landing strategy, or I'm in a block and I'm interested to see what metrics move. And so you can kind of, 
you know, look around and maybe, maybe you want to go back in time. So we, uh, we tried to focus on that. And that was, again, something that we prided ourselves on is just making it super fast and super easy to understand. The arrows yeah. up, it's good. The arrows down, less good. So you need to work at it. So I understand that. And that's the thing too. I mean, even beyond tech with just programming and training in general, one thing that I tell everybody that I work with is that my goal is to basically put myself out of a job in the sense that I will be fully transparent with how I program with the athlete. I'll be fully transparent about why I'm making the decisions that I'm making because at the end of the day, if again, he's deployed, he's away training, he goes to a different unit, whatever. I want him to be able to, manage control and dictate the trajectory of his training separate from me. And I think early on getting into this whole strength and conditioning game, you sort of, you control and own your program kind of capital P program because it's the secret sauce. And you, you know, you go behind your closed doors and you create the, the magic and you give it to the athlete and they go and do it. And if it doesn't work, then it's their fault. Cause that's my program capital P and it's my secret sauce. And I kind of, I, I don't know if it's just, being cynical or being the environment that I work in, but I, I, have moved away from that because again, it's more about systems than it is about objective Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday reps and sets. Here's what you're going to do 12 weeks from now. I can predict exactly what's going to happen on Tuesday at two 30 PM. You're going to do three sets of five at 82%, blah, 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 blah. I think we all, at least from what I've seen around conferences and people I've spoken with, everyone sort of pays lip service to this idea of individualization, but, I don't think people really grasp and by people, I mean, strength coaches really grasp what that means when it comes down to sitting across the table from an athlete and saying, what do you want to do? Like I can help because I have this special knowledge about putting reps and sets and things together, but kind of with, you know, to sort of put a bow on everything with the moxie and limitation based training and yada, yada, yada. Very few things that you give an athlete actually matter. I mean, at the end of the day, if they're bought into the program, if they like you, and if you don't hurt them, you'll probably move in a positive direction. So does it matter if I do back squat, front squat, close grip, bench press, overhead? Like, not really. And I think we get so hung up on those details and then try to put tech to influence those details that we forget that at the end of the day, we're dealing with a biological, psychological, sociological organism that will either adapt in the right direction or not. And if I can't pivot to respond to the stimulus and the adaptation that the athlete's experiencing, then I should probably reevaluate the way that I'm doing things, which was totally a soapbox answer on my part, but it gets to sort of the why behind all of this and where tech I think can come in and play a role. I remember when I got to Yale though, one of the first things I did, you know, is I had individual meetings with every player. Mm-hmm. Are you going to tell me what to do? I, you know, what should I work on? I don't know. You tell me like, <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do you think? Cause if that intent isn't there, we would talk about intentionality all the time, you know, best case scenario, maybe you train them four days a week. There's 168 hours in the week. You can completely foobar any progress by going and getting trashed on Thursday night. So we shouldn't even lift. We should just do recovery. If you're going to go get, you know, absolutely, you know, crushed. And then conversely, like as we went up into the level of training, having to tell. And so you take a team that maybe is below 500 and a team that's going for a championship. Hey, everybody, you know, you need to buckle up here and realize that the decisions that you make on like Tuesday afternoon are going to affect you on Saturday. And so you have to really focus on team and driving those habits and intentions. And to your point, 
if it's a press, if it's a press at a low angle, if it's a press at whatever, all these very, very technical things. And it's very choreographed. You see them, it's very focused and they make funny faces, but you know, they, they don't really care, you know, or they're not bought into it. And so, you know, you really have to have an honest conversation of how bought in are the players to the program and not the, as you say, the program with a capital P, but just like the culture that you have. And, mm-hmm. you know, will they basically run through walls? Will you know, on the lady side, like some of, some of our female teams, you know, got to the point where they, they were just absolutely out of their mind. They would go in and crush weight and just, you could see the culture and the demeanor change. And it wasn't, it wasn't about the reps and sets where the coach did such a great job of just instilling this, I can attitude. And I think a lot of times that gets skipped over. Usually it's almost like a military takeover. I am in charge. Here's my scepter. You will do what I tell you. If it, if it, if it doesn't hurt, you know, we'll keep going until we'll do this till morale improves and, I just think that's such an old school way of coaching where just now we can see like, yeah, they don't like it. They went home on break and nobody worked out. They're all out of shape. Correct. That is a correct assessment. We had no workouts done over this break. We did not maintain our fitness. And uh, I think you just bring up a great point. And, and how do you, how do you, you know, as you go forward, you know, how do you make yourself better both from a, you know, whether it's what we talked a lot about tech, but just even from your own coaching programming now, kind of as you transition to this next level of kind of management and scale, what are you doing for self-betterment? Because I think that's another area from talking to people gets overlooked. I'm just so busy. I'm just so Mm. busy. I don't have time to, you know, whatever conference book, mentor, meet, talk, network. What, uh, what, what do you do to kind of keep the blade sharp? Man. Well, I think something that, and I had always heard this kind of coming up in this strength and conditioning world where, you'll hear folks that have been around a lot longer say things like, Oh, you know, read books outside of the field for an example. And what I have found is I have done this longer is that a lot of the answers to questions that I have been asking have come from fields completely unrelated to strength and conditioning, whether a great example is a book by Thomas Kuhn about the, you know, the theory around scientific revolutions has absolutely nothing to do with strength and conditioning but he introduced the term paradigm shift into the lexicon. And so investigating what it means to actually have a paradigm shift from one belief to another and seeing that take place in the tactical space was incredibly enlightening in how I frame my thinking around why I, I do what I do. It's a little bit of a stretch to, you know, plug that into the reps and sets conversation. But when you, I think when you become self-aware of how your decision-making process sits within these left and right bounds of the paradigm within which you exist, which is probably the most heady thing I've ever said in my life. Um, it, it helps you to understand that you aren't necessarily beholden to any prior decision-making bias. So what I mean by all of that is when I sit across from an athlete in a tactical space, for example, and he tells me that he wants to do X, Y, and Z as it relates to his performance on a deployment or in a firefight or what have you. I can, if I want to, throw out Prilipin's chart. I can throw out all the stuff that I swear to as a strength coach because it might be that he adapts better to a rep scheme or a set scheme or an exercise selection or an ordering of a session that isn't written down in any strength and conditioning book. Does that mean it's wrong? Absolutely not. It means that it's something that maybe we just haven't looked at before. And I think that that's one of those things, too, that people don't necessarily recognize that as human beings, we seek and chase after patterns, which is why all of these strength and conditioning textbooks 
give you reps and sets. They give you charts. They give you tempos. They give you work rest intervals because it scratches that itch around this idea of like, if this guy comes and talks to me about training, I can plug in his situation to my predetermined algorithm and it will spit out this program that I will prescribe to him that will achieve the goal that we've decided to achieve. And I know that this is dancing around the answer to your question, but I think when I sit down to sort of improve myself, so to speak, I have moved away from, and this isn't to say that all strength and conditioning textbooks are bad. I should probably caveat asterisk, whatever that, because I think there's a lot of goodness in reading that material and becoming proficient at a lot of different things, but opening the optic up and recognizing your, your weak points and then diving into that head first, whether it's biology, anatomy, again, critical thinking, this idea of chaos theory, which folks may not even know is a thing, but chaos theory is incredibly relevant to human performance because we're dealing with systems physiology. We're not dealing with robotic, you know, input output, like we talked about. Um, so those are the types of things that I dive into. Um, for specific examples, like I said, that book by Thomas Kuhn is priceless. Anything written by John Kiley, and I've said this on probably every podcast that I've done, like John Kiley is a huge mentor of mine. His thoughts and ideas around periodization and athlete management are, I've said paradigm shifting a lot, but they're paradigm shifting. Um, so that's the type of stuff that I'll go after. Evan Pycon, he is the moxie master, he and Aaron Davis. Um, and those are the guys that I have learned a lot from when it comes to what we talked about with the limiter-based training. Um, you know, the constraints-based approach to human performance. And then even within the tactical space and the broader strength and conditioning space, I think there's a lot of guys out there from what I've seen that prescribe to this idea of a bottoms-up biopsychosocial athlete-centric, whatever you want to call it, approach to training. And they just don't necessarily recognize that a lot of us are in the same boat. And so I think that when you put this message out there, this idea of, hey, maybe we're not dealing with robots, maybe we're dealing with human beings a lot of guys will raise their hand and say, dude, I'm seeing the same thing. Like I'd love to chat. And so I've connected with a lot of guys through, through LinkedIn, through Instagram, email, whatever. And we've had these conversations because I think we're all seeing the same thing. It's just that folks are sort of off on their own in their different camps and may not recognize that a particular resource could be beneficial to them that they just haven't come across. Um, so again, this is probably a theme in this podcast where I'm dancing around questions with long answers. Um, but that's the type of stuff that I'm going after is, is things that aren't necessarily traditional, quote unquote, strength and conditioning, more this newer biopsychosocial idea of human performance. Would you have done it sooner? Because we always think about if you could go back in time, because the, the game has evolved, especially go in five year increments. I feel I feel like there's been just a, just a massive change. And for a lot of reasons, economics and the pandemic and also like you, you better learn how to train remote because your whole school is remote, um, you know, and those kind of things. What, what if you kind of go back, you know, would you have prepped yourself to do something different or would you have kept the same kind of approach? Man, that's a good question. And actually, so I have a quote on my desk by the Dalai Lama, which is incredibly cheesy. Uh, but it says that know the rules well, something along the line, know the rules well so that you can break them. It's something like that. Um, so to answer your question about would I do anything differently or sooner, I don't think so. I think that there is goodness. And I tell this to folks that are coming up, especially interns that I've worked with or, or students that I talk to, where I think that it's important to know kind of the, we'll call it old school strength and conditioning stuff. I think that that's, that's relevant because there is goodness in it. And like we said, there are athletes in the past that have done 
exactly what you'll read in whatever manual and they've done very well. So who's to say that it doesn't work? I just think that we need to take a step back and say, just because that has worked doesn't mean that other options aren't available to you. And so having a foot in that door and, and being aware of what's relevant and what's current in the strength and conditioning world, I think is important. And I don't think I would change that. If I could do one thing differently earlier on, I, I maybe would have hopped on board a little bit earlier on some of the some of the fields of study around strength and conditioning. So again, like psychology, systems theory, economics, even um, I think diving into that stuff a little bit earlier on might've helped, but again, it takes time to arrive at this kind of holistic viewpoint, if you want to call it that. I was going to say level of clarity, but that sounds incredibly, I don't know. <laughs> no, I understand. Well, let's, let's flip, let's go the other direction. You know, you got a crystal ball, you look out, five, 10, 15 years out looking forward. What do you think? What do you see? You know, I've sat down to write a book probably 10 times and haven't gotten past the first page. So I like to think that maybe at some point I'll put all this down on paper, but um, no, I, I, again, I, I do think, like I said, there's a lot of folks that have come to terms with the idea of, we'll call it the biopsychosocial approach to training, but just understanding that we have moved away from in many ways, a Soviet economics-based model of periodization into more of an athlete-centric, robust, resilient model of periodization, lower P as opposed to capital P. Um, and I think COVID has actually helped a lot with that because to your point, having to deal with folks remotely almost requires a level of individualization because everybody is in a different scenario. I, I have guys that have access to the coolest garage gyms of all time. And I have guys that have access to, you know, I worked with one guy who had two cinder blocks and a backpack. So automatically I've got to pivot with how I think about training. So I, I think is that awareness around athletes as individuals becomes more, more common. You'll start to see the traditional literature, the traditional testing, the traditional certifications kind of follow suit. At least that's my hope. So if I had to look into a crystal ball five, 10 years from now, I would like to think that if you stepped into any graduate level strength and conditioning program, you would see curriculum around psychology, around critical thinking, around, you know, again, I'll plug him, John Kiley's work with periodization and less of this, here's how the Soviets did it in the 70s, ipso facto, we should do it the same way, because that's why we should do it this way. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. We, we've mentioned a bunch of different times that going to that relationship based and then almost a medical model of individualization, but being flexible enough. And then whether it's using diagnostic tools or just asking, I can't tell you the number of times I interns, did you go ask person how they're doing? Yeah, I asked them how they felt one through 10. I'm like, no, did you ask them like how their test went? Like, how's their mom and dad? Like, how's the person, right? And like, it's crazy if things are falling apart at home, maybe it's not the day to like do the max out, not because anything else, you know, data point or this, or that you just, you care about the person. And then on the flip side, sometimes when you see people that are super fired up and you know, they're a reducer, how do you feel? I feel fine. I can run. Well, dude, you got one leg. You're like limping, limping through the weight room. Maybe, maybe we confirm that with some data and, and everything kind of being a tool, but I think expected outcomes. Um, Eric Renahan was on uh, a few weeks ago and he talked about, you know, you walk into the emergency room and your elbow's killing you and they give you cough syrup. You're like, man, this is, 
my elbow's still killing me. And then they come back and they say, you're you know, your elbow's still get, you know, killing you. Well, I'm going to give you double the dose of the cough syrup. And like, what are we talking about? So the day of that capital P, if you come to this place, this is what you're going to do and fit in our box. Um, you know, again, sure. Well intentioned, but I think there'll be enough ways to evaluate the changes biological. And the thing too, people just won't put up with it because you can go and see progress now versus the black box of I'm going to go in, I'm going to flap around, I'm going to be sweaty, and then I'm going to come out and be better. And in 16 weeks, I'll be a better sweaty person. Um, I think those days are, those are days are numbered. I mean, that's a good way to put it. I think, you know, I, I bash on West side a lot, but it's, it's more so because most folks know about it and less because of the methodology. But to give an example is when I talk to other coaches or whatever, and you know, what, what kind of, what is your program look like? What kind of stuff you do? Oh, you know, it's, it's kind of West side baseball, blah, blah, blah. To me, that's just an indicator that you have not fully wrapped your head around dealing with a fundamentally different type of athlete where the why behind what you're doing is more important than the what and the how. So kind of to your point, I think, again, looking forward, I like to imagine that we'll be dealing with a higher, higher level of education when it comes to athletes being involved in the training process. So they will, they will know more about why they're doing what they're doing. They'll be more aware of their body reacting to the training, whether it's because of a wearable or some other piece of tech, or just because they've been around it a lot longer and more information is available. But I talk about all this through the lens of strength and conditioning. The same could be said about, you know, like you said, the medical model, like the way that we deal with disease now is different than it was 20 years ago. The way that, you know, my wife is a therapist, the way that she deals with her patients is different than it was 20 years ago, because again, we're recognizing fundamentally kind of across the board that everyone is different. And that's at a societal level. That's at a strength and conditioning level. And I think it just changes the way that we, we go about training and we're starting to see chinks in the armor of the way that we've been doing things for so long, which is, you know, Ishurin said this, the, the, the literature says this, like blah, 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 blah. It's more about what is the athlete across from you saying and doing right now? And how do you respond to that? Now, do you think that the known expectations of a called effective treatment training or whatever is going to drive the market? Or do you think it's the economics? Cause another talking point that I think, you know, everyone hotly debates is that, yeah, that you don't make a lot of money and in performance and, you know, you go to med school, you make more money than if you don't go to med school. Well, we've got individuals that, you know, realistically, and I would tell interns like the first five years, you're below the poverty line yeah, for sure. Maybe you're on food stamps. Um, and then after that, you're going to get some job that's, you know, 10 to 20 K and you're going to work a lot of hours there. And hopefully you can work your way to a, you know, your late twenties, you can be in like a 30 to 40 K job, still working tons of hours. And, you know, you better get a dog or a cat because you're not gonna have a lot of friends because availability, you know, kind of trumps ability. And sometimes the other abilities like ability and those things can kind of get you forward. And the top performers in our field are often hired by the sport coach because they're in lockstep and buddies. So we don't really have a education or driven model where this certification, this degree gets me more. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What do you, what do you think is going to drive the change? Man, I could, I could go on about my opinions about sort of industry-wide economics with strength and conditioning. I, and I, go right ahead. <laughs> go right ahead. I think in a lot of ways we shoot ourselves in the foot and I use we to talk about kind of all of us to include, you know, the, the governing bodies that sort of lead the charge. Um, we shoot ourselves in the foot because we subscribe to this old school mentality of 
you know, the, the meathead and the gem that's just yelling and screaming at the athlete. And, and I experienced this firsthand because in the tactical space, especially on the special operations side, you're dealing with small teams and you're dealing with embedded sports medicine professionals. So I worked alongside athletic trainers, physical therapists, orthopedic surgeons, dietitians, psychologists. And there is this stereotype that comes with strength and conditioning that, Hey, like you work with the athletes, but when we sit down to talk about injury prevention and anatomy, like you don't really get it. You can't really add much here. Enough letters after our name, or we don't go to as many years of school or what have you. Like, I think that there are ways, and I don't, I don't have all the answers to this, but I think that there are ways that as an industry, we can sort of raise the bar in terms of where that, where that threshold is for getting your foot in the door. I think it, it's gotta be more than a book that you read and a test that you take because again, talking about athletic, tra- I've worked with athletic trainers that have a CSCS. So they've automatically got two or three certifications beyond what I have, but I'm supposed to sit here as a subject matter expert. I don't have, I didn't go to school for PT or AT or what have you. Um, so is, you know, again, I, I don't know, is it a board certification that we do? Is it just more school? Is it higher degree requirements? I don't know, but I think before the folks that we sit across the table from, meaning medical professionals, MSK professionals, before they take us seriously, we have to take ourselves seriously and be more than the dude in sweatpants yelling at the guy to hit the football clean because he's got 50 of his teammates around him and we got to lift big to win the game on Saturday. And I'll probably get shot in the face by a lot of people for saying that, but I have so many times had to more or less prove myself to medical professionals that I have worked with and show my worth. And I think that that's an important piece to this where I would argue that there are as much, there are as many bad doctors as there are bad strength coaches, but because they are doctors, they are considered to be a higher level of functioning individual than your bad strength coach. And I I mean, I don't know if it's exactly one for one, but I think the point is pretty clear, which is that we as, as an industry could probably do a better job of raising the bar to say, look, we are the most proactive component of a sports medicine team. I will see and deal with more athletes on a day-to-day basis than anyone else in this sports medicine team, because your ATs, your PTs, your med docs, they are reactive. They're dealing with injuries after they happen. I'm dealing with performance as it's evolving. So I'm going to be dealing with these guys and these girls every single day. I will hear things that they will tell me that I can then refer to a psychologist. I could hear things that they tell me that I may refer to a PT or an AT. So there's a lot of value in having strength coaches, but time and time again, it's, it's the most expendable piece of the team because the threshold to gain that title is, is so low. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's again, me on a soapbox, but I think that there's probably ways that as a profession, we could take ourselves to the next level. What I was asking turns. Okay. So walk me through why you want to be a strength coach. And by the way, don't just say it's because you're a 5'10, 180 pound predominantly male that was an athlete in high school, liked lifting weights and now just doesn't want to leave sweats. And I love sweats. Like it's great. Like, it's <laughs> awesome. But like walk me through and, and if their answer wasn't that they wanted to serve, get, give back, or they weren't kind of centric around the act of helping others, you could typically tell that they would flame out or they would have a really hard time. Like, why do we have to clean the weight room? Well, cause the athletes need it, you know, and then with COVID it's like, so we don't get sick. You know, why do we have to look at an audit, the data? You know, why do we have to use it? Why do we have to go through it? It'd be just faster if we threw it up on a whiteboard. Right. Mm-hmm. But also, especially, you know, in tacticals, the most extreme, like, you know, take football, rugby, any of the, you know, take football, rugby, any of the 